Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Pete Peterson, he is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I couldn't wait to talk to him uh, today, uh, given everything that's going on and floating around. I was really interested to hear, too, from an academic, uh, someone who lives their life and their world in, 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 in the environment of ideas, the exchange of ideas, the communication and teaching of ideas, given especially what we learned of from the U.S. Attorney General earlier in the week. Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Welcome back, Pete. Happy Friday. And to you too, Seth. Great to be back with you. It's great to have you. I know you were on some travels, and uh, I think I might have been on a travel at one point, so it's it's been too long. We have a lot to catch up on. You're probably overflowing. You're always overflowing. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than being bottled up. Let me start with that first thing, um, if I can, and then I want to talk to you about something that you and I have been passionate about as well, a separate issue, maybe not altogether separate, loneliness, actually. When you think about it, I think we actually can tie these two things together. But what was your initial reaction when you saw this memorandum from the Attorney General of the United States directed towards uh, towards moms and dads showing up at school board meetings to talk against racialism in the curriculum? What was your first reaction to that? Well, my first reaction was, what does the FBI have to do with what's going on in local school districts? That's meetings? a good reaction. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. If, if we're going to think about the constitutionality of the federal government getting involved in what are essentially local government meetings, understanding that local government school districts, there are also local government police departments, mm-hmm. um, what is the necessity of having the federal government involved? So that was that was the first step. And obviously... And as disturbing was that this was done in response, apparently, uh, to a request by the National School Boards Association, which leads to a second question. When when does our Department of Justice respond directly to a request of a lobbying organization? Oh, they were probably, Pete, trying to catch up with the CDC and their relationship with the National Education Association, don't you think? You know, you really do wonder when you see the lobbying that's going on. And and in both of the instances we're talking about, we're talking about education lobbies uh, that are requesting actions by the federal government. So, yes, you're right. Both of those- that's a great – that's an interesting phrase. I had a caller the other day who summoned up that uh, that old line from uh, from uh, Albert Shanker, that the minute the, t- the children start paying union dues, they will be my concern. We should, we should think of them not so much as education lobbies as professional educator lobbies, right? In a way, it has very little to do at the end of the day what these lobbyists care about. It's not the children. Well, we're certainly seeing some of that here in the state of California and even more specifically um, with the L.A. Unified School District. I don't... I saw an interview with the head of that. Oh, my gosh. There it is. Oh, my gosh. Right, exactly. It was in Los Angeles Magazine. I saw that interview. My word. I mean, if, if folks want to get a sense of how... Some of these education, the teachers' union lobbies operate. 
Um, you know, that is a bracing article uh, from the teachers union in the Los Angeles area. So, you know, that those were a couple of the initial. But then when you actually get into what is being requested and what comes out of that memo, just to quote directly from that memo from the attorney general of the United States, looking to convene groups of uh, folks from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, U.S. Attorney, federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial leaders. <laughs> and these mean, this is, quote, these meetings will facilitate the discussion of strategies for addressing threats against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff, and will open dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting, assessment, and response, yeah. unquote. Yeah. Assessment and response, both of which should send chills. See, I think that was the point of this memo in a way, the chilling effect. We can talk Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. I think oh, it was directed I... more towards parents than the local police office. I, in fact, I bet if I went to my local police uh, agency, they would know they would have less information about this than most. They would know less about it than parents. I believe it was directed at two parents to chill them, to shut them up, to scare them. I couldn't agree more. This this is this is really a, a chilling effect on what's to come on those parents. That as some of these policies roll out, whether it's around masks or whether it's around curriculum or whether it's around vaccination, uh, a parent's going to have to think twice now about stepping into the uh, public comment line um, to get up and speak and. Uh, uh, and I think what's related to that is how vague the language is in this memo. That's I mean, the worst part of it, quite frankly. Threat. Right, right, you know, right, right. What if an overeager establish? Uh, what if an overeager official, school board, or enforcement takes it just a little more seriously than than others? By yeah, the way, I, mean, I have to say this is the same Merrick Garland everyone was telling us was such the great moderate who would balance things out. Remember that. Well, and how many moderates in this administration where we you know, people we thought were moderate right. have turned, you know, quite radical. Gone native, as we used to say. Can I say that anymore? I don't know. If I can, say, can I? I, mean, I don't know. Can I say? Well, yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, even again, just pulling from the text of this memo, threats against public servants are not only illegal, they run counter to our nation's core values. Well, What's a threat? Exactly. If I stand up at a school board meeting and say, I am running against you in the next election and I'm going to take you out, am I now subject? Is that, is that illegal? Was <laughs> it illegal for Chuck Schumer to say Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch oh, were coming for you? Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. I, I don't mean, think a parent has said anything so strong as that. It's It really is disturbing. And I don't take the attorney general to be a stupid person. Nope. And so using, I think, vagueness is part of his purpose here. He wants people to be open, these words to be open to interpretation, um, because it will, as we agree, have a chilling effect on, on public engagement. And I will say to borrow some terms from the left, this is not what democracy looks like. Right. Right. I, You know, sometimes people will ask me, I'm sure you get the same thing, how do you know what's true or not? And you know, when, when a news story comes across their transom or an email or, you know, maybe a social media post, I say, I, I have a general rule. 
that if something is too good to be true, it probably is. And if it's too bad to be true, it probably is. And I can't say that anymore these days. Who would have thought that the Attorney General of the United States would invoke the FBI over school board meetings? Now, I had a, I had a perceptive caller a couple, uh, couple of days ago, Pete, and he said, you know what the school board meeting reminds me of? It reminds me of that 1943 Norman Rockwell painting called Freedom mm-hmm. of Speech with a man, mm-hmm. young man looking like kind of, maybe he's a construction worker. He kind of looks like a young Lincoln standing up and just airing his views at the old New England town hall meeting. That's, That's you don't get closer to that than a school board. You and I not being in New England town hall meetings, you no. don't get closer to that than a no. school board meeting. You're absolutely right, and and it and it's particularly personal for me. I have to say, Seth, because some of the work that I do here at the policy school is training local government leaders in how to host more participatory public meetings. Right, and you know, invariably the complaint goes out from people in local government, and I've done these trainings all over the the state and increasingly around the country, well, we can't get anybody to show up. Well, hmm. there are instances when, when people are indeed showing up, and now we're going to bring the specter of the FBI uh, to bear on this reflexively as called for by the National School Boards Association. It's really disturbing as someone who really has tried to promote civic engagement and to get government to be more transparent about their policymaking, to see the federal government and specifically the Department of Justice weigh in on something like this, understanding that there are local law enforcement agencies that if they were necessary, they were there. You bet. You bet. How hard is it to have a sergeant at arms at a meeting? I, I, you know, I went to school in a time, you did too, I think, when a lot of college professors were really kind of animated about the fact that Sometimes the government sends, used to send people into the classrooms to monitor them. You know, FBI yep. was doing that kind of stuff once in a while and how angry they were. I wanted to say one more thing about this Garland memo, Merrick Garland memo, yeah. and get your take on it. Because it seems to me this country has traveled an awfully long distance from its original understandings of the First Amendment, its secondary understandings of the First Amendment, its tertiary understandings of the First Amendment. We've come an awfully long way in our understandings of freedom of speech where we have done this interesting conversion, or the progressives have, I should say. I'd love your thoughts on this. We, we now are able to punish speech in the progressives' law books – by defining it as violence, speech equals violence, your words equal violence, you're well familiar with that, that mantra. Right. But the funny thing is, the other side is another progressive direction. The other side of that coin is they try and categor- categorize the serious problem of violence as speech. And you yeah. can think of this in any number of examples from non-peaceful protests to, let's say, flag burning. There's a lot of examples. But there's a tell hidden in there, I think, which is they know that speech is the innocuous or non-harmful thing. That's why they are trying to make our speech violence and their violence speech. That's the trick that the progressives are playing on us right now, I think. I wonder what you think. Well, it's a very provocative point. I 
I certainly agree with the first half of that okay. equation. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll say, and and I I do think I I don't think enough conservatives understand the power of that assumption, okay. which is to say that if we can say that speech equals violence which has a lot of different permutations, yep. right? It's the yep. whole thing about trigger warnings. Yep. It's the whole thing about political correctness. It's the whole thing about using certain terms yep. in reference to others. Yep. But if, if that is allowed to stand, then our democratic republic, which requires and demands deliberation and the use of speech both for and in opposition to, to persuade and deliberate and debate. If we're in a place where speech can be treated as ipso facto violence, mm-hmm. then the whole the whole construction falls apart. That's right. That's and, right. And increasingly, when certain words are removed from the lexicon, when certain words that meant one thing now mean something else, uh-huh. This is all part of that perspective, yep. and and it really does behoove all American citizens to understand that freedom of speech really is that bedrock, and the understanding that speech is somehow can be treated as violence really hacks away at the roots of that. It's such a far di- – I agree with your – take on what I said. That's that's nicely that's well put, uh, Pete. It, it, it's it's to give an idea of the distance we've traveled. I was I was reading a lot of um, former uh, I was reading a lot of old free speech cases, First Amendment cases, and even the progressives have moved from what they were. You know, you don't get more progressive in history, really, or at least at the beginning of the progressive movement than Woodrow Wilson. His appointments mm-hmm. to the Supreme mm-hmm. Court, you think about Benjamin Cardozo, you think about Louis Brandeis. Benjamin Cardozo wrote, of the freedom of speech, one may say that it is the matrix, the indispensable condition of nearly every form of freedom. Now, I bring that up, Pete, because I was having some intellectual and historical fun in my first hour today, I had discovered that Norman Rockwell freedom of speech painting, which first was placed in the Saturday Evening Post in 1943. It had an accompanying essay written by a novelist, uh, uh, Booth Tarkington. And it's an imagined conversation between a young Benito Mussolini and a young Adolf Hitler. And they're talking about free speech. And Benito Mussolini is saying, well, in America and in England, uh, anyone can stand up and say what he thinks. If they believe he says something sem- uh, sensible, they vote for what he suggests. If they think he says something foolish, they vote no. The young Adolf Hitler says, absolutely, exactly. Speech is the expression of thought and will. And if we prevent our enemies from express- expressing their speech, we will have them enchained. And if they don't listen to us, we engage in a purge. Now, what was the point of all this in Tarkington's essay? His point was, you get rid of these town halls, that picture, that Norman Rockwell freedom of speech, the ability of a citizen to express their opinion for a redress of grievances in public. That's the road to totalitarianism. That's the point he was making. That's the point Cardoza was making. We We have traveled a far and long way from that understanding, unless we haven't, which is even more worrisome. Well, and of course, just to go back to the original 
genesis, the genesis of this conversation. If we are going to squelch or make people fearful of participating at the local level, and that's going to happen because of the movement of the federal government, um, that just cannot end well. Right. You know, the genius of the founding of the American system is that running well, uh, that civic engagement, particularly at the local level, can have an impact on public policy that affects our everyday lives. And what is more, what's a more personal area of public policy than our schools? Mm-hmm. And so when we have gubernatorial candidates like the Democrat running in Virginia saying that parents really shouldn't be involved in, you know, the curriculum of their of their schools. I mean, that is just that is un-American, right there. What he's saying. And again, if people feel powerless, they will look for ways to claim power. And if I'm understanding what Tarkington is is saying there through his uh, protagonist is that for if people don't have a sense of agency, uh, they will look for those who they believe will take that power yep. or utilize yep. that power on their behalf. Yep. And that is, uh, again, it flips the American project on its head. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I think there's something, too, going on here with, I know, another subject that's near and dear to your heart and head, um, it's wrapped up in the subject of, well, the umbrella of loneliness or social isolation, if that's a fair enough phrase to use as well. You have spent a lot of your academic career as well as your personal career dealing with issues, uh, the, uh, public policy issues surrounding loneliness. Loneliness and political life is a conference you have coming up, uh, I think, next week. And, right. right there, there's an element of this here at play as well. I, I want to hear about that conference. You're seeing more and more studies on this social um, phenomenon. And at the same time, I got to think some of the harsher, more harsh mitigation strategies last year contributed to the boiling over of people in the streets engaging in, you know, expressions that they normally wouldn't have. But talk to me a little bit about what your concerns are in loneliness and social isolation. By the way, you want to you want to encourage loneliness and social isolation, scare people from going to town hall meetings. Exactly right, Seth. I mean, the work that we've been doing at the policy school through something called the American Project has been exploring these issues uh, related to what's called loneliness or alienation, social isolation, uh, even before COVID hit. Yeah. Um, and it's really uh, an area of academic research that cuts across disciplines um, to Nobel Prize winning economists. Angus Deaton and Anne Case uh, wrote uh, the book Deaths of Despair. That's right. Looking at some of these issues and the economic impact of this. Uh, certainly, the area of healthcare and medicine is being deeply impacted by this. So we're seeing more medical research on the health consequences of uh, loneliness and alienation. It certainly has played into um, the increasing levels of suicide that we're seeing 
not only among those in their the 50-somethings, which is the subject of uh, the deaths of despair work, but increasingly with kids. Um, and so it's really something that cuts across a lot of different areas of American life. Uh, it falls under this broader term of, of loneliness or alienation. All of these things were exacerbated by the COVID response, which required that everybody return inside their houses and separate from others, uh, social distance. And uh, we are still counting the costs. And I think, as you and I have talked about on your show, I, I think we're we're going to be counting the cost for years to come, uh, the impact on kids uh, being removed from uh, social environments with other kids, what that's going to mean not only to their education, but also to their mental health. And in these other areas, as we go further up the, the age demographics, uh, we, are, we are definitely seeing the impact on a number of generations all the way up into uh, those who are elderly, um, the deleterious, the adverse consequences of the COVID response measures that have really uh, pushed people into uh, their homes and away from others. The more you look at it, the more I look at it, I should say, the more I want to cry, the more it makes me want to cry. Mother Teresa tells the story or makes the point, I think we've talked about this before, if you go into a congregate setting nursing home in the living room and you open the door, every head turns. Someone is hoping that you're there to visit them. Yeah. The, the, and, the, go ahead. Yeah. And and we can look across our civic institutions, right, whether it's churches or local civic organizations, business organizations. Um, and again, when we're talking about some of these issues around local government participation when these things are uh, prevented, required, shut down, when these connecting institutions, which have been so much a part of the American experience, right, this very Tocquevillian understanding of, of what America is, it's not just the Constitution. It is what are the habits of the heart, so to speak, to yep. borrow another phrase from Tocqueville. Yep. And those habits are often about Americans working together to solve local problems and doing that through civic institutions. And when we've had this uh, incredible two years where Americans have been told to distance themselves from one another, to not congregate, to not meet in public and gather, uh, to not develop relationships. To not show um, their faces by masking them. It, that's another piece, too, right? Uh, you know, the, the entire American project. To be afraid suffers. of your fellow citizen who's nothing, doing nothing more than breathing. Yeah. I mean, that we are, in, we are, we are re instantiating fear in a population that isn't used to fear. Right. And, and also is one that is used to, in moments of fear, uh, gathering with others. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And that that was the thing that, frankly, and I'll use this word, was so infernal yeah. about the the church and religious organization lockdowns and shutdowns. I mean, that was the place. And we've talked about, you know, we just passed the 20th anniversary of 9/11. Yeah. That was the that was a part about 9/11 where we saw just a, a, a tremendous increase in church attendance yep. and 
And uh, you know what else we saw an increase of? This is so related, Pete. And I don't know yeah. if. Well, let me let me not express ten thoughts at once. Let me <laughs> let me let me let me do it this way. You know what else we saw? I, I I did I did some research on this at the time. I wish I still had it. But you're right. Um, church attendance was up. You know what else was up? Twelve step meetings. Yeah. Twelve step meetings were fuller. And you know, so now. Let's just look at what the exact opposite of that looks yeah. like. Closing churches, closing 12-step meetings. Yeah. And what would you need more than the ability to stay sober or yeah. help yourself from relapse yeah. than in a time of isolation and fear? And although I don't think the nexus has been made, I think you raise a very provocative point specifically around the 12 step meetings. We know that we're seeing increases right. in overdoses yep. and suicide. Yep. We know that's happening. Yep. And so, and we've also talked about the, the connections that I have felt even here at the policy school, as I see students coming in during this COVID era, it just reminded me so much of the, months and years right after 9-11 where people felt the ground underneath their feet just begin to give way and wondered what they could do um, and and think about ways that they could respond by getting engaged uh, civically or politically. By but the way, I'm not to... expert on this. You you might be, and, and you certainly know it from the literature, the academic uh, the literature, Pete, but I'm going to make a pretty strong assumption that if someone's trying to get into recovery or maintain their sobriety, I'm going to guess that there are extra hard challenges that we all know about. Obviously, losing a job can be highly anxiety ridden. Um, being told you can't go back to work can be a high, highly anxiety driven thing. But I'm going to bet that the counselors and the um, uh, whatever they call it in the 12-step meetings, the mentor programs that they have, I'm going to bet that the first piece of advice is don't be alone, don't isolate. Yeah. I'm going to bet that's what they say. Absolutely. And and it's the genius of the 12-step program. Right? It, it, this is about personal connections and mm-hmm. relationships built initially face-to-face. And, and then, prayer and church, where exactly the, whenever right. there is two or more, right? I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean, that. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, it, yeah. it, I mean, it, you're absolutely right. And again, it, it's always been the American way that government has been a facilitator, mm-hmm. right, has mm-hmm. been a promoter of those face-to-face community-level connections. And again, that's another thing that just is so disturbing about this Merrick Garland memo. That's right. That's right. I mean, right. to reach out from D.C., there are 14,000 school districts. But now almost every American knows that, you know, if you say the wrong thing at your local community meeting, you know. You may get that knock at midnight. That's right. Yep. And, uh, again, that can just be your mind running. More fear. But Garland hasn't stepped forward to clarify nope. in any way. That's what's so odd. He sent deputies to a House hearing no one heard of uh, or was paying attention to. That's right. That's right. Neither Joe Biden nor Merrick Garland have really addressed this at all. We have a lot of work to do, Pete. A lot we of do. work. Uh, well, I am so glad to be doing some of it, a small part of it, with you who is doing a very large part of it, you and your school and your work. Good luck on your conference. Thanks so much. Let me yeah. know how it goes when we talk next time. Next Tuesday, yeah. You looking forward to it. it.
Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When we're criticizing the colleges, the elementaries, the secondaries, we're not talking about Pepperdine School of Public Policy. They're the good guys. Pete, have a blessed weekend. You as well, Seth. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.